Chapter 3 Her thus turning her back on me was, fortunately not for my just preoccupations, a snub that could check the growth of our mutual esteem. We met, after I had brought home little Miles, more intimately than ever on the ground of my stupefaction, my general emotion, so monstrous was I then ready to pronounce it that such a child as had now been revealed to me should be under an interdict. I was a little late on the scene, and I felt, as he stood wistfully looking out for me before the door of the inn at which the coach had put him down, that I had seen him, on the instant, without and within, in the great glow of freshness, the same positive fragrance of purity in which I had, from the first moment, seen his little sister. He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Gross had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. What I then and there took him to my heart for was something divine that I have never found to the same degree in any child. His indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love— it would have been impossible to carry a bad name with a greater sweetness of innocence, and by the time I had got back to Bly with him, I remained merely bewildered, so far, that is, as I was not outraged, by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room in a drawer. As soon as I could compass a private word with Mrs. Gross, I declared to her that it was grotesque. She promptly understood me. "'You mean the cruel charge? It doesn't live an instant. My dear woman, look at him.' She smiled at my pretension to have discovered his charm. "'I assure you, miss, I do nothing else. What will you say then?' she immediately added. "'In answer to the letter, I had made up my mind. "'Nothing.' "'And to his uncle?' "'I was incisive. "'Nothing.' "'And to the boy himself?' "'I was wonderful. "'Nothing.' She gave with her apron a great wipe to her mouth. "'Then I'll stand by you. We'll see it out.' "'We'll see it out.' I ardently echoed, giving her my hand to make it a vow. She held me there a moment, then whisked up her apron again with her detached hand. Would you mind, miss, if I use the freedom to kiss me? No. I took the good creature in my arms, and after we had embraced like sisters, felt still more fortified and indignant. This, at all events, was for the time, a time so full that, as I recall the way it went, it reminds me of all the art I now need to make it a little distinct. What I look back at with amazement is the situation I accepted. I had undertaken with my companion to see it out, and I was under a charm, apparently, that could smooth away the extent and the far and difficult connections of such an effort. I was lifted aloft on a great wave of infatuation and pity. I found it simple, in my ignorance, my confusion, and perhaps my conceit, to assume that I could deal with a boy whose education for the world was all on the point of beginning. I am unable even to remember at this day what proposal I framed for the end of his holiday and the resumption of his studies. Lessons with me, indeed, that charming summer, we all had a theory that he was to have, but I now feel that, for weeks, the lessons must have been rather my own. I learned something, at first, certainly, that had not been one of the teachings of my small, smothered life, learned to be amused and even amusing, and not to think for the morrow. It was the first time, in a manner, that I had known space and air and freedom all the music of summer, and all the mystery of nature. And then there was consideration, and consideration was sweet. Oh, it was a trap, not designed, but deep, to my imagination, to my delicacy, perhaps to my vanity, to whatever in me was most excitable. The best way to picture it all is to say that I was off my guard. They gave me so little trouble. They were of a gentleness so extraordinary. I... They were of a gentleness so extraordinary. I used to speculate but even this with a dim disconnectedness, as to how the rough future, for all futures are rough, would handle them and might bruise them. They had the bloom of health and happiness, and yet 
If I had been in charge of a pair of little grandees, or princes of the blood, for whom everything to be right would have to be enclosed and protected, the only form that, in my fancy, the after-years could take for them was that of a romantic, a really royal extension of the garden in the park. It may be, of course, above all, that what suddenly broke into this gives the previous time a charm of stillness, that hush in which something gathers or crouches. The change was actually like the spring of a beast. In the first weeks, the days were long. They often, at their finest, gave me what I used to call my own hour, the hour when, for my pupils, tea-time and bedtime having come and gone, I had, before my final retirement, a small interval alone. Much as I liked my companions, this hour was the thing in the day I liked most, and I liked it best of all when, as the light faded, or, rather I should say, the day lingered and the last calls of the last birds sounded in a flushed sky from the old trees, I could take a turn into the grounds and enjoy, almost with a sense of property that amused and flattered me, the beauty and dignity of the place. It was a pleasure at these moments to feel myself tranquil and justified, doubtless perhaps also to reflect that, by my discretion, my quiet good sense and general high propriety, I was giving pleasure, if he ever thought of it, to the person to whose pressure I had responded. What I was doing was what he had earnestly hoped and directly asked of me, and that I could, after all, do it proved even a greater joy than I had expected. I dare say I fancied myself, in short, a remarkable young woman, and took comfort in the faith that this would more publicly appear. Well, I needed to be remarkable to offer affront to the remarkable things that presently gave their first sign. It was plump one afternoon in the middle of my very hour. The children were tucked away, and I had come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with me in these wanderings was that it would be as charming as a charming story suddenly to meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of a path and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. I only asked that he should know, and the only way to be sure he knew would be to see it, and the kind light of it in his handsome face. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was, when, on the first of these occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short on emerging from one of the plantations and coming into view of the house. What arrested me on the spot, and with a shock much greater than any vision had allowed for, was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand there, but high up, beyond the lawn and at the very top of the tower to which, on that first morning, little Flora had conducted me. This tower was one of a pair, square, incongruous, crenellated structures, that were distinguished, for some reason, though I could see little difference, as the new and the old. They flanked opposite ends of the house, and were probably architectural absurdities, redeemed in a measure indeed by not being wholly disengaged, nor of a height too pretentious, dating, in their gingerbread antiquity, from a romantic rival that was already a respectable past. I admired them, had fancies about them, for we could all profit in a degree, especially when they loomed through the dusk by the grandeur of their actual battlements, yet it was not at such an elevation that the figure I had so often invoked seemed most in place. It produced in me, this figure in the clear twilight, I remember, two distinct gasps of emotion, which were, sharply, the shock of my fist and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred, 
and the figure that faced me was, a few more seconds assured me, as little anyone else I knew as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had, on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, become a solitude. To me, at least, making my statement here with a deliberation with which I have never made it, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took it in, what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again, as I write, the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost for the minute all its voice. But there was no other change in nature, unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger's sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants became more intense. The great question, or one of these, is afterward, I know, with regard to certain matters, the question of how long they have lasted. Well, this matter of mine, think what you will of it, lasted while I caught at a dozen possibilities, none of which made a difference for the better that I could see, in their having been in the house, and for how long, above all, a person of whom I was in ignorance. It lasted while I just bridled a little with the sense that my office demanded that there would be no such ignorance and no such person. It lasted while this visitant, at all events, and there was a touch of the strange freedom as I remember in the sign of familiarity of his wearing no hat, seemed to fix me from his position with just the question, just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. We were too far apart to call to each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us breaking the hush would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was in one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him as I see the letters I form on this page. Then, exactly after a minute, as if to add to the spectacle, he slowly changed his place, passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still markedly fixed me. He turned away, and that was all I knew. Chapter 4 It was not that I didn't wait on this occasion for more, for I was rooted as deeply as I was shaken. Was there a secret at Bly? A mystery of Udolpho, or an insane, an unmentionable relative kept in an unsuspected confinement? I can't say how long I turned it over, or how long, in a confusion of curiosity and dread, I remained where I had had my collision. I only recall that, when I re-entered the house, darkness had quite closed in. Agitation in the interval certainly had held me and driven me, for I must, in circling about the place, have walked three miles, but I was to be but I was to be, later on, so much more overwhelmed that this mere dawn of alarm was a comparatively human chill. The most singular part of it, in fact, singular as the rest had been, was the part I became, in the hall, aware of in meeting Mrs. Gross. This picture comes back to me in the general train, 
the impression, as I received it on my return, of the wide, white-paneled space, bright in the lamplight, and with its portraits and red carpet, and of the good, surprised look of my friend, which immediately told me she had missed me. It came to me straightway under her contact that, with plain heartiness, mere relieved anxiety at my appearance, she knew nothing whatever that could bear upon the incident I had there ready for her. I had not suspected in advance that her comfortable face would pull me up, and I somehow measured the importance of what I had seen by my thus finding myself hesitant to mention it. Scarce anything in the whole history seemed to me so odd as this fact that my real beginning of fear was once, as I may say, with the instinct of sparing my companion. On the spot, accordingly, in the pleasant hall and with her eyes on me, I, for a reason that I couldn't then have phrased, achieved an inward resolution, offered a vague pretext for my lateness, and with the plea of the beauty of the night and of the heavy dew and wet feet, went as soon as possible to my room. Here it was another affair. Here, for many days after, it was a queer affair enough. There were hours from day to day, or at least there were moments, snatched even from clear duties, when I had to shut myself up to think. It was not so much yet that I was more nervous than I could bear to be, as that I was remarkably afraid of becoming so. For the truth I had now to turn over was, simply and clearly, the truth that I could arrive at no account whatever of the visitor with whom I had been so inexplicably, and yet as it seemed to me so intimately, concerned. It took little time to see that I could sound without forms of inquiry and without exciting remark any domestic complications. The shock I had suffered must have sharpened all my senses. I felt sure, at the end of three days, and as the result of mere closer attention, that I had not been practiced upon by the servants, nor made the object of any game. Of whatever it was that I knew, nothing was known around me. There was but one sane inference. Someone had taken a liberty rather gross. That was what, repeatedly, I dipped into my room and locked the door to say to myself. We had been, collectively, subject to an intrusion. Some unscrupulous traveler, curious in old houses, had made his way in unobserved, enjoyed the prospect from the best point of view, and then stolen out again as he came. If he had given me such a bold, hard stare, that was but a part of his indiscretion. The good thing, after all, was that we should surely see no more of him. This was not so good a thing, I admit, as not to leave me to judge that what essentially made nothing else much signify was simply my charming work. My charming work was just my life with Miles and Flora, and through nothing could I so like it as through feeling that I could throw myself into it in trouble. The attraction of my small charges was a constant joy, leading me to wonder afresh at the vanity of my original fears. The distaste I had begun by entertaining for the probable grey prose of my office. There was to be no grey prose, it appeared, and no long grind, so how could work not be charming that presented itself as daily beauty? It was all the romance of the nursery and the poetry of the schoolroom. I don't mean by this, of course, that we studied only fiction and verse. I mean I can express no otherwise the sort of interest my companions inspired. How can I describe that except by saying that instead of growing used to them, and it's a marvel for a governess, I call the sisterhood to witness, I made constant fresh discoveries. There was one direction, assuredly, in which these discoveries stopped. Deep obscurity continued to cover the region of the boy's conduct at school. It had been promptly given me, I have noted, to face that mystery without a pang. Perhaps even it would be nearer the truth to say that, without a word, he himself had cleared it up. He had made the whole charge absurd. My conclusion bloomed there with the real rose flush of his innocence. He was only too fine and fair for the little, horrid, unclean school world, and he had paid a price for it. I reflected acutely that the sense of such differences, 
such superiorities of quality, always on the part of the majority, which could include even stupid, sordid headmasters, turned infallibly to the vindictive. Both the children had a gentleness, it was their only fault, and it never made Miles a muff, that kept them, how shall I express it, almost impersonal and certainly quite unpunishable. They were like the cherubs of the anecdote, who had, morally at any rate, nothing to whack. I remember feeling with Miles in especial as if he had had, as it were, no history. We expect of a small child a scant one, but there was in this beautiful little boy something extraordinarily sensitive, yet extraordinarily happy, that more than in any creature of his age I have seen struck me as beginning anew each day. He had never for a second suffered. I took this as a direct disproof of his having really been chastised. If he had been wicked, he would have caught it, and I should have caught it by the rebound. I should have found the trace. I found nothing at all, and he was therefore an angel. He never spoke of his school, never mentioned a comrade or a master, and I, for my part, was quite too much disgusted to allude to them. Of course, I was under the spell, and the wonderful part is that, even at the time, I perfectly knew I was. But I gave myself up to it. It was an antidote to any pain, and I had more pains than one. I was in receipt in these days of disturbing letters from home, where things were not going well. But with my children, what things in the world mattered? That was the question I used to put to my scrappy retirements. I was dazzled by their loveliness. There was a Sunday to get on when it rained with such force and for so many hours that there could be no procession to church, in consequence of which, as the day declined, I had arranged with Mrs. Gross that should the evening show improvement, we would attend together the last service. The rain happily stopped, and I prepared for our walk, which, through the park and by the good road to the village, would be a matter of twenty minutes. Coming downstairs to meet my colleague in the hall, I remembered a pair of gloves that had required three stitches and that had received them, with a publicity perhaps not edifying, while I sat with the children at their tea, served on Sundays by exceptions, in that cold, clean temple of mahogany and brass, the grown-up dining room. The gloves had been dropped there, and I turned in to recover them. The day was gray enough, but the afternoon light still lingered, and it enabled me, on crossing the threshold, not only to recognize, on a chair near the wide window, then closed, the articles I wanted, but to become aware of a person on the other side of the window and looking straight in. One step into the room had sufficed. My vision was instantaneous. It was all there. The person looking straight in was the person who had already appeared to me. He appeared thus again with, I won't say greater distinctness, for that was impossible, but with a nearness that represented a forward stride in our intercourse and made me, as I met him, catch my breath and turn cold. He was the same, and seen this time as he had been seen before, from the waist up. The window through the dining room was on the ground floor, not going down to the terrace on which he stood. His face was close to the glass, yet the effect of this better view was, strangely, only to show me how intense the former had been. He remained but a few seconds, long enough to convince me that he also saw and recognized, but it was as if I had been looking at him for years and had known him always. Something, however, happened this time that had not happened before. His stare into my face, through the glass and across the room, was as deep and hard as then, but it quitted me for a moment during which I could still watch it, see it fix successively several other things. On the spot, there came to me the added shock of a certitude that it was not for me he had come there. He had come for someone else.
The flash of this knowledge, for it was knowledge in the midst of dread, produced in me the most extraordinary effect, started as I stood there a sudden vibration of duty and courage. I say courage because I was beyond all doubt already far gone. I bounded straight out of the door again, reached that of the house, got in an instant upon the drive, and passing along the terrace as fast as I could rush, turned a corner and came full in sight. But it was in sight of nothing now. My visitor had vanished. I stopped. I almost dropped with the real relief of this. But I took in the whole scene. I gave him time to reappear. I call it time, but how long was it? I can't speak to the purpose today of the duration of these things. That kind of measure must have left me. They couldn't have lasted as they actually appeared to me to last. The terrace and the whole place, the lawn and the garden beyond it, all I could see of the park, were empty with a great emptiness. There were shrubberies and big trees, but I remember the clear assurance I felt that none of them concealed him. He was there or was not there, not there if I didn't see him. I got hold of this, then instinctively, instead of returning as I had come, went to the window. It was confusedly present to me that I ought to place myself where he had stood. I did so. I applied my face to the pane and looked as he had looked into the room. As if at this moment to show me exactly what his range had been, Mrs. Gross, as I had done for himself just before, came in from the hall. With this, I had the full image of a repetition of what had already occurred. She saw me as I had seen my own visitant. She pulled up short as I had done. I gave her something of the shock that I had received. She turned white, and this made me ask myself if I had blanched as much. She stared, in short, and retreated on just my lines, and I knew she had then passed out and come round to me, and that I should presently meet her. I remained where I was, and while I waited, I thought of more things than one. But there's only one I take space to mention. I wondered why she should be scared. Chapter 5 Oh, she let me know as soon as, round the corner of the house, she loomed again into view. What in the name of goodness is the matter? She was now flushed and out of breath. I said nothing till she came quite near. With me? I must have made a wonderful face. Do I show it? You're as white as a sheet. You look awful. I considered. I can meet on this without scruple any innocence. My need to respect the bloom of Mrs. Gross's had dropped without a rustle from my shoulders, and if I wavered for the instant, it was not with what I kept back. I put out my hand to her, and she took it. I held her hard a little, liking to feel her close to me. There was a kind of support in the shy heave of her surprise. You came for me, for church, of course, but I can't go. Has anything happened? Yes, you must know now. Did I look very queer? Through this window? Dreadful! "'Well,' I said, "'I've been frightened.' Mrs. Gross's eyes expressed plainly that she had no wish to be, yet also that she knew too well her place not to be ready to share with me any marked inconvenience. Oh, it was quite subtle that she must share. "'Just what you saw from the dining-room a minute ago was the effect of that. What I saw just before was much worse.' Her hand tightened. "'What was it?' "'An extraordinary man, looking in.' "'What extraordinary man?' I haven't the least idea. Miss, Mrs. Gross gazed round us in vain. Then where is he gone? I know still less. Have you seen him before? Yes, once, on the old tower. She could only look at me harder. Do you mean he's a stranger? Oh, very much. Yet you didn't tell me. 
No, for reasons. But now that you've guessed... Mrs. Gross's round eyes encountered this charge. Ah, I haven't guessed, she said very simply. How can I, if you don't imagine? I don't in the very least. You've seen him nowhere but on the tower, and on this spot just now. Mrs. Gross looked around again. What was he doing on the tower? Only standing there and looking down at me. She thought a minute. Was he a gentleman? I found I had no need to think. No. She gazed in deeper wonder. No. Then nobody about the place? Nobody from the village? Nobody. I didn't tell you, but I made sure. She breathed a vague relief. This was, oddly, so much to the good. It only went, indeed, a little way. But if he isn't a gentleman, what is he? What is he? He's a horror. A horror? He's... God help me if I know what he is. Mrs. Gross looked round once more. She fixed her eyes on the duskier distance, then pulling herself together, turned to me with abrupt inconsequence. It's time we should be at church. Oh, I'm not fit for church. Won't it do you good? It won't do them, I nodded at the house. The children? I can't leave them now. You're afraid? I spoke boldly. I'm afraid of him. Mrs. Gross's large face showed me, at this for the first time, the faraway faint glimmer of a consciousness more acute. I somehow made out in the delayed dawn of an idea I myself had not given her, and that was as yet quite obscure to me. It comes back to me that I thought instantly of this as something I could get from her, and I felt it to be connected with the desire she presently showed to know more. When was it? On the tower. About the middle of the month, at this same hour. Almost at dark, said Mrs. Gross. Oh, no, not nearly. I saw him. I saw him as I see you. Then how did he get in? And how did he get out? I laughed. I had no opportunity to ask him. This evening, you see, I pursued, he has not been able to get in. He only peeps? I hope it will be confined to that. She had now let go of my hand. She turned away a little. I waited an instant, then I brought out, Go to church. Goodbye, I must watch. Slowly she faced me again. Do you fear for them? We met in another long look. Don't you? Instead of answering, she came nearer to the window and, for a moment, applied her face to the glass. You see how he could see, I meanwhile went on. She didn't move. How long was he here? Till I came out, I came to meet him. Mrs. Gross at last turned round, and there was still more in her face. I couldn't have come out. Neither could I, I laughed again. But I did come. I have my duty. So have I mine, she replied, after which she added. What is he like? I've been dying to tell you, but he's like nobody. Nobody, she echoed. He has no hat. Then seeing in her face that she already, in this, with a deeper dismay, found a touch of picture, I quickly added stroke to stroke. He has red hair, very red, close curling, and a pale face, long in shape, with straight good features and, and little rather queer whiskers that are as red as his hair. His eyebrows are somehow darker. They look particularly arched and as if they might move a good deal. His eyes are sharp, strange, awfully, but I only know clearly that they're rather small and very fixed. His mouth's wide and his lips are thin, and except for his little whiskers, he's quite clean-shaven. He gives me a sort of sense of looking like an actor. An actor? It was impossible to resemble one less, at least, than Mrs. Gross at that moment. I've never seen one, but so I suppose them. He's tall, active, erect, I continued, but never, no, never a gentleman. 
My companion's face had blanched as I went on. Her round eyes started, and her mild mouth gaped. She gasped, confused, stupefied. A gentleman, he! You know him, then? She visibly tried to hold herself. But he is handsome. I saw the way to help her. Remarkably. And dressed? In somebody's clothes. They're smart, but they're not his own. She broke into a breathless, affirmative groan. They're the masters. You do know him? She faltered but a second. Quint, she cried. Quint? Peter Quint, his own man, his valet, when he was here. When the master was? When the master was? Gaping still, but meeting me, she pieced it all together. He never wore his hat, but he did wear, well, there were waistcoats missed. They were both here last year, then the master went, and Quint was alone. I followed, but halting a little. Alone? Alone, with us. Then, as from a deeper depth. In charge, she added. And what became of him? She hung fire so long that I was still more mystified. He went too, she brought out at last. Went where? Her expression at this became extraordinary. God knows where. He died. Died? I almost shrieked. She seemed fairly to square herself, playing herself more firmly to utter the wonder of it. Yes, Mr. Quint is dead. Chapter 6 it took us, of course, more than that particular passage to place us together in presence of what we had now to live with as we could. My dreadful liability to impressions of the order so vividly exemplified, and my companion's knowledge, henceforth a knowledge half consternation and half compassion, of that liability. There had been, this evening, after the revelation left me for an hour so prostrate, there had been, for either of us, no attendance on any service, but a little service of tears and vows, of prayers and promises a climax to the series of mutual challenges and pledges that had straightway ensued on our retreating together to the schoolroom and shutting ourselves up there to have everything out. The result of our having everything out was simply to reduce our situation to the last rigor of its elements. She herself had seen nothing, not the shadow of a shadow, and nobody in the house but the governess was in the governess's plight. Yet she accepted, without directly impugning my sanity, the truth as I gave it to her, and ended by showing me, on this ground, an awe-stricken tenderness, an expression of the sense of my more than questionable privilege, of which the very breath has remained with me as that of the sweetest of human charities. What was settled between us accordingly that night was that we thought we might bear things together, and I was not even sure that, in spite of her exemption, it was she who had the best of the burden. I knew at this hour, I think, as well as I knew later what I was capable of meeting to shelter my pupils— but it took me some time to be wholly sure of what my honest ally was prepared for me to keep terms with so compromising a contract. I was queer company enough, quite as queer as the company I received, but as I trace over what we went through, I see how much common ground we must have found in the one idea that, by good fortune, could steady us. It was the idea, the second movement, that led me straight out, as I may say, of the inner chamber of my dread. I could take the air in the court, at least, and there Mrs. Gross could join me. Perfectly can I recall now the particular way strength came to me before we separated for the night. We had gone over and over every feature of what I had seen. He was looking for little Mills. A portentous clearness now possessed me. That's whom he was looking for. But how do you know? I know, I know, I know! My exultation grew. And you know, my dear! She didn't deny this, but I required, I felt, not even so much telling as that. 
She resumed in a moment at any rate. What if he should see him? Little Miles, that's what he wants. She looked immensely scared again. The child? Heaven forbid, the man. He wants to appear to them. That he might was an awful conception, and yet somehow I could keep it at bay, which, moreover, as we lingered here, was what I succeeded in practically proving. I had an absolute certainty that I should see again what I had already seen, but something within me said that by offering myself bravely as the sole subject of such experience, by accepting, by inviting, by surmounting it all, I should serve as an expiatory victim and guard the tranquility of my companions. The children, in especial, I should thus fence about and absolutely save. I recall one of the last things I said that night to Mrs. Gross. It does strike me that my pupils have never mentioned— She looked at me hard as I musingly pulled up. His having been here and the time they were with him. The time they were with him, and his name, his presence, his history, in any way. Oh, the little lady doesn't remember. She never heard or knew. The circumstances of his death, I thought with some intensity. Perhaps not. But Miles would remember. Miles would know. Oh, don't try him, broke from Mrs. Gross. I returned her the look she had given me. Don't be afraid, I continued to think. Tis rather odd. That he has never spoken of him? Never, by the least illusion. And you tell me they were great friends? Oh, it wasn't him, Mrs. Gross said with emphasis declared. It was Quinn's own fancy. To play with him, I mean, to spoil him. She paused a moment, and then she added, Quint was much too free. This gave me, straight from my vision of his face, such a face, a sudden sickness of disgust. Too free with my boy. Too free with everyone. I forbore, for the moment, to analyze this description further than by the reflection that a part of it applied to several of the members of the household, of the half-dozen maids and men who were still of our small colony. But there was everything for our apprehension in the lucky fact that no discomfortable legend, no perturbation of scullions, had ever, within anyone's memory, attached to the kind old place. It had neither bad name nor ill fame, and Mrs. Gross, most apparently, only desired to cling to me and to quake in silence. I even put her, the very last thing of all, to the test. It was when, at midnight, she had her hand on the schoolroom door to take leave. I have it from you, then, for it's of great importance that he was definitely and admittedly bad. Oh, not admittedly. I knew it. But the master didn't. And you never told him. Well, he didn't like tail-bearing. He hated complaints. He was terribly short with anything of that kind, and if people were all right to him, he wouldn't be bothered with more. This squared well enough with my impressions of him. He was not a trouble-loving gentleman, nor so very particular, perhaps, about some of the company he kept. All the same, I pressed my interlocutress. I promise you, I would have told. She felt my discrimination. I dare say I was wrong, but really I was afraid. Afraid of what? Of things that man could do. Quint was so clever, he was so deep. I took this in still more than probably I showed. You weren't afraid of anything else, not, not of his effect. His effect, she repeated with a face of anguish and waiting while I faltered, on innocent little precious lives. They were in your charge. No, they were not in mine, she roundly and distressfully returned. The master believed in him and placed him here because he was supposed not to be well, and the country air so good for him. So he had everything to say. Yes, she let me have it, even about them. Them? That creature? I had to smother a kind of howl. And you could bear it? No, I couldn't, and I can't now. And the poor woman burst into tears. 
A rigid control from the next day was, as I have said, to follow them, yet how often and how passionately for a week we came back together to the subject. Much as we had discussed it that Sunday night, I was in the immediate later hours in especial, for it may be imagined whether I slept, still haunted with the shadow of something she had not told me. I myself had kept back nothing, but there was a word Mrs. Gross had kept back. I was sure, moreover, by morning that this was not from a failure of frankness, but because on every side there were fears. It seems to me, indeed, in retrospect, that by the time the morrow's sun was high, I had restlessly read into the fact before us almost all the meaning they were to receive from subsequent and more cruel occurrences. What they gave me above all was just the sinister figure of the living man. The dead one would keep a while, and of the months he had continuously passed at Bly, which, added up, made a formidable stretch. The limit of this evil time had arrived only when, on the dawn of a winter's morning, Peter Quint was found by a laborer going to early work, stone dead on the road from the village a catastrophe explained, superficially at least, by a visible wound to his head, such a wound as might have been produced, and as on the final evidence had been, by a fatal slip in the dark and after leaving the public house on the steepish icy slope, a wrong path altogether at the bottom of which he lay. The icy slope, the turn mistaken at night and in liquor, accounted for much, practically in the end and after the inquest and boundless chatter, for everything, but there had been matters in his life, strange passages and perils, secret disorders, vices more than suspected that would have accounted for a good deal more. I scarce know how to put my story into words that shall be a credible picture of my state of mind, but I was in these days literally able to find a joy in the extraordinary flight of heroism the occasion demanded of me. I now saw that I had been asked for a service admirable and difficult, and there would be a greatness in letting it be seen, oh, in the right quarter, that I could succeed where many another girl might have failed. It was an immense help to me. I confess I rather applaud myself as I look back, that I saw my service so strongly and so simply. I was there to protect and defend the little creatures in the world, the most bereaved and the most lovable, the appeal of whose helplessness had suddenly become only too explicit, a deep, constant ache of one's own committed heart. We were cut off, really, together. We were united in our danger. They had nothing but me, and I, well, I had them. It was, in short, a magnificent chance. This chance presented itself to me in an image richly material. I was a screen. I was to stand before them. The more I saw, the less they would. I began to watch them in a stifled suspense, a disguised excitement that might well, had it continued too long, have turned to something like madness. What saved me, as I now see, was that it turned to something else altogether. It didn't last as suspense. It was superseded by horrible proofs. Proofs, I say, yes, from the moment I really took hold. This moment dated from an afternoon hour that I happened to spend in the grounds with the younger of my pupils alone. We had left Miles indoors on the red cushion of a deep window seat. He had wished to finish a book, and I had been glad to encourage a purpose so laudable in a young man whose only defect was an occasional excess of the restless. His sister, on the contrary, had been alert to come out, and I strolled with her half an hour, seeking the shade, for the sun was still high and the day exceptionally warm. I was aware, afresh with her as we went, of how, like her brother, she contrived, it was the charming thing in both children, to let me alone without appearing to drop me, and to accompany me without appearing to surround. They were never importunate, and yet never listless. My attention to them all really went to seeing them amuse themselves immensely without me, this was a spectacle they seemed actively to prepare, and that engaged me as an active admirer. I walked in a world of their invention, 
they had no occasion whatever to draw upon mine, so that my time was taken only with being, for them, some remarkable person or thing that the game of the moment required, and that was merely, thanks to my superior, my exalted stamp, a happy and highly distinguished sinecure. I forget what I was on the present occasion. I only remember that I was something very important and very quiet, and that Flora was playing very hard. We were on the edge of the lake, and as we had lately begun geography, the lake was the Sea of Azov. Suddenly, in those circumstances, I became aware that on the other side of the Sea of Azov we had an interested spectator. The way this knowledge gathered in me was the strangest thing in the world. The strangest, that is, except the very much stranger in which it quickly merged itself. I had sat down with a piece of work, for I was something or other that could sit, on the old stone bench which overlooked the pond, and in this position I began to take in with certitude, and yet without direct vision, the presence at a distance of a third person. The old trees, the thick shrubbery, made a great and pleasant shade, but it was all suffused with the brightness of the hot, still hour. There was no ambiguity in anything, none whatever, at least, in the conviction I, from one moment to another, found myself forming as to what I should see straight before me and across the lake as a consequence of raising my eyes. They were attached to this juncture, to the stitching in which I was engaged, and I can feel once more the spasm of my efforts not to move them till I should so have steadied myself as to be able to make up my mind what to do. There was an alien object in view, a figure whose right of presence I instantly, passionately questioned. I recollect counting over perfectly the possibilities, reminding myself that nothing was more natural, for instance, than the appearance of one of the men about the place, or even of a messenger, a postman or a tradesman's boy from the village. That reminder had as little effect on my practical certitude as I was conscious, still even without looking, of its having upon the character and attitude of our visitor. Nothing was more natural than that these things should be the other things that they absolutely were not. Of the positive identity of the apparition, I would assure myself as soon as the small clock of my courage should have ticked out the right second. Meanwhile, with an effort that was already sharp enough, I transferred my eyes straight to little Flora, who, at the moment, was about ten yards away. My heart had stood still for an instant with the wonder and terror of the question whether she too would see, and I held my breath while I waited for what a cry from her what some sudden innocent sign either of interest or alarm would tell me. I waited, but nothing came. Then, in the first place, and there is something more dire in this, I feel, than in anything I have to relate, I was determined by a sense that, within a minute, all sounds from her had previously dropped, and in the second, by the circumstance that, also within the minute, she had, in her play, turned her back to the water. This was her attitude when I at last looked at her, looked with the confirmed conviction that we were still together under direct personal notice. She had picked up a small, flat piece of wood which happened to have in it a little hole that had evidently suggested to her the idea of sticking in another fragment that might figure as a mast and make the thing a boat. This second morsel, as I watched her, she was very markedly and intently attempting to tighten in its place. My apprehension of what she was doing sustained me so that after some seconds I felt I was ready for more. Then I again shifted my eyes. I faced what I had to face.